Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Good evening. How's everyone doing today? I hope everybody's doing just fine. That's right. This is the first podcast of the new year. Can you believe it? Yes. And we're recording this on the 6th of January, which is the traditional day for taking down your Christmas tree. Right on. Just took my Christmas tree down and I have all kinds of room now. Myth Take Episode 18. I'm Darren. I'm Allison. And uh, welcome back. Yes. Um, So, Episode 18. What are we doing today? We are looking at Homeric Hymn to Dionysus. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. I hope you're prepared for that one. Sure. <laughs> Dionysus is, is uh, blah, 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 that's a lot of S's. Mm-hmm. Dionysus is pretty cool, I think. Yeah? Yeah, his hymn is pretty cool. Okay. Um, but before we get into it, I wanted just to make a couple of announcements. Um, I think we mentioned in our last episode that there's a neat little humanities podcasting community sprung up on Twitter. And uh, if you're looking for humanities-type uh, podcasts, so anything about literature, art, myth, archaeology, philosophy, history, all kinds of things like that, um, on Twitter, just search for the hashtag humanitiespodcasts, and you can find lots of us. And if you are an independent um, podcaster and want to uh, join us for some mutual support and conversation, certainly get in touch with at humcomcasters on Twitter as well. And on Facebook, too. And on Facebook, Humanities Podcasts. Um, the other thing I really wanted to mention was we discovered, I discovered when I was uploading our last episode that our uh, limited plan is out of space. Um, we've done that many podcasts. So we're starting to kind of rotate through our podcasts and take down the oldest ones to make room for the newest ones. Mm-hmm. So what that means for you, dear listener, is if you see a podcast you really want to listen to, download it and save it on your device just in case. Um, we're, uh, we'll be removing a few of the early solar system podcasts, which makes me a little bit sad um, to kind of break up the set. The, the set. But anyway, um, if you haven't listened to some of those early ones, um, download those in the next couple of weeks before they disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe someday we will have room to keep everything up uh, for every <laughs> for everybody for all time, but not right now. Well, going with the theme of New Year's, out with the old, in with the new, right? There you go. In the Middle Ages, and, you know, there you, you jump over the sword and the broom, the sword cuts away the old, and the broom sweeps it away. Oh, so I did not know about go. the sword. Well, that's, you know, folk tale, right? Yeah. All right. American to Dionysus. We've talked about Homeric hymns before. Yeah, we love the Homeric hymns. They're really, really old. They're called Homeric because they're In the Homeric old. style. And in the Homeric style, but they're not actually by Homer, which is a very common mistake. Author unknown. Yes. Anonymous. Anonymous. Although oh. there has been some inferences. There's been yeah. a few people that have been named as being the author of this one and so on and so forth. But that's not a big deal right now. So. Yeah, and there's quite a collection of them too. Um, there's s- several actually. I think there's at least two to di- uh, two written to Dionysus. Maybe yeah, there three. might be even three. Three. Oh, what um, we know of. So we are looking at hymn number seven, hymn to Dionysus. That's right. Uh, which tells, well, a pretty interesting story about Dionysus. Mm-hmm. So it's about 600 BC, maybe 650 BC, right? Yep. And but, but th- again, then again, the pedigree of this one is r- relatively unknown. 
uh, Martin West talks about hymn number one, which exists only in fragments, which we do not have, as being older and even being known by, you know, the um, the the creators of the Iliad and the Odyssey that it influenced some of the events mm -hmm. in there. So, although Dionysus doesn't appear by name in those particular works, the structure of this hymn um, does um, make um, some appearances in the Iliad and some appearances in the Odyssey. Now, not Hymn 7, which is the one that we're going to be looking at today. I'm speaking about a little-known Hymn 1 that exists in fragmentary form. Um, but Hymn 7 is complete narrative of oh, just about Pretty this, a little bad. chop at the yeah. end, yeah, 40, 59 lines, uh, and it is a nice little narrative yeah. package that um, I think is quite uh, informative about Dionysus and often as a complex god. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't really have any real theme. You know, I was just thinking about, about what this theme was. And because mm. we, had, we did two episodes of, of Heroes at Home, and we focused primarily on female heroes. And then, and then this one, we just sort of said, hey, let's, let's talk about it. Dionysus. But, yeah. you know, well, maybe... We're about the passage analysis. So maybe there the is theme, a theme. The theme will reveal itself. It, it might very well <laughs> reveal itself. I do like the idea of thinking about January and thinking about new beginnings. And, and since this is an arrival... Um, yeah. this, 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 this little narrative in hymn 7 is about the arrival of Dionysus. And he's and, a fertility god. Yeah, and we, th I think that's a, a, good, that's a good way Let's of looking go at that. it. We planned right? that. This is, this, is, this is it. And it's an introduction, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's an introduction of a, of a powerful and influential divinity, a second generation Olympian, a, so, a son of Zeus who, of course, many of our listeners would already be familiar with, and we don't really need to talk too much about that unless it sort of comes up in the course of our, our um, discussion and, and on, on the uh, analysis of the passage. Um, and I did just want to mention, um, just hopping back to what you were saying about the dating of, of the hymn. Yeah. Um, of course, these are very difficult to date. Yes. And so for our non-classicists or people who are maybe a little less familiar, um, scholars look at things like the style and the diction and, yes. and, and um, those kinds of things. So some people have argued for 5th century. Some people have argued for even earlier. Mm -hmm. um, we do know that uh, the this hymn is connected to a ritual that yes. was part of the celebration of the God, and we know that that was happening in the 6th century. Yes. But whether the ritual came first and then the hymn was written to explain the ritual or vice versa, oh, yeah. who knows? Yeah. So, lost in the These things midst are of time. Yeah, somewhat imprecise. But I do like the idea of tying in the ritual to this hymn, right? Uh, it's going to be it's going to become quite important for our understanding overall of, of hymn 7, uh, and I think the two work hand in hand. It, it, it does become an etiological uh, or a, an etiological myth to explain the origin of this particular ritual. So if you didn't, if you just read the narrative and didn't really know about the ritual, now your knowledge is a little bit more sort of expanded, elaborated, because the two tie together very well. And the ritual, yeah. um, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, mm -hmm. but the ritual involved a procession celebrating the arrival of the god right. with the god um, carried on a ship wreathed with ivy right. and uh, the the god and his priest yes. were carried on this ship. So whether this ship, you know, how exactly this worked, if the ship was rolled, pulled, whatever. We know of other, other yeah. rituals for other gods that also involved ships. They were seafaring people, sure. very important. And, and so. these, these, are, these arrival scenes or these rituals of a god coming or going into a city or 
during the time of a sacred procession are common throughout many Olympian divinities and even more local epicoric gods or goddesses or heroes that we don't even really know about. Um, but this is part of, of, of something that we see even in today. Even today, we have these sort of arrivals of a divinity coming into a community. What a celebration, right? Yeah. Uh, and a ritual procession. Yeah. So we're going to read the hymn in a couple of smaller chunks. Yeah. But you will get to hear the entirety of it today. Sure. Um, because it is a it is a shorter hymn. Um, so let's get started. Okay, let's do it. Of Dionysus, son of glorious Semele, I shall remember how he appeared along the shore of the barren sea on a jutting headland, looking like a young man in the first bloom of youth. And his beautiful dark hair waved about him, and he wore on his strong shoulders a purple cloak. Soon men on a well-constructed ship approached swiftly over the wine-dark sea, Tyrosinian pirates whom an evil fate was leading. All right. Whoa, there you have it. <laughs> it's all over. No, just joking. <laughs> so that's the first eight lines mm -hmm. of the Hymn to Dionysus. This is your introduction, yeah. Yeah. It's a little unusual f um, compared to some of the hymns because we don't have a big, long opening um, invocation of the muses that we sometimes get. Very astute. Yes. Yeah. You kind of get straight to the point. Well, this one's unique as far as this invocation or uh, prologue, prologue is concerned. Uh, in many of these hymns, this this one here has a very unique narratological structure, and and that's something that I want to draw attention to. But the very first line where it says of Dionysus, right? This is obviously going to be whom we're speaking about, son of glorious Semele. Now you know and I know that Zeus is the father and Semele is the mother, the mortal mother, right? A Theban princess, and we automatically know the great background story. But I find it interesting that um, it's your introduction to this god and. And, and many uh, introductions to this god are are through the mother, um, and uh, this is the is Semele is evoked right away instead of Zeus, right? So right away it throws the audience back to the Theban narrative, right? We know where he is. We don't really know where he is. He's out there somewhere in the world, coming to Greece. This is his arrival, and. Um, right away with that beginning with that opening line we're introduced to the sort of powerful mythic substructure of Dionysus which is claiming his heritage right writing a wrong and and inflicting sort of um, some vengeance right on the people of Thebes we know because we know from Euripides Bacchae so that whole sort of corpus of myths is already involved in the very first line it's invoked with a word Simele the mother right the honor of the mother and the audience would be familiar what her fate and destiny was too right and they're going to try to put themselves into the myth now where they are right and as we're talking about arrival mm -hmm. when we look at the Greek gods uh, and their um, adoption from an anthropological historical uh, Perspective. Yeah. If you can, historical is not quite the right word, but um, outside of, of literature, Dionysus is one of the newer gods and is often traced back to the East, to uh, what they called Asia, Asia sure. Minor. Yeah. Um, modern day Turkey, Middle East. Yeah, um, like area. So 
they need an explanation of how this God comes into their pantheon yeah. and how they make room for him. Well, even this notion is slightly contradictory because we do have uh, archaeological evidence of Dionysus that is extreme in its antiquity that goes back into the late Bronze Age, the Mycenaean mm-hmm. era, and even into, you know, um, the, to yeah, Mycenae, yeah. right? So um, he is a contradictory god, but that's part of what he is. He is both old and new, yeah. right? Um, just arriving, but yet having been established since the beginning. So it's part of the negotiation with understanding this god is 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 looking at these two different qualities, right? Um, and his TMI and his honor, his function, and so on in the universe is not easily summed up with uh, a handful of phrases. So that's something that we're not going to try to track tackle in this in this episode too much but it will come up um, but he is a god here that is uh, uh, that is arriving right that is that is coming so we're in a we're in an introductory phase here right mm-hmm. you get to jump into the narrative right this is like to borrow a phrase from like Van Morrison into the mythic right that's my version we know we're into the mythic mind and unlike other previous hymns where the singer calls upon the muses, like you had mentioned, invokes the muses to um, inspire them, right? So that they may sing correctly and fully, um, beautifully about a god or goddess. This one is different right from lines two. The second line says, I, singular I, first person shall remember how he appeared along the shore of the barren sea, right? Now, this is unlike all the others, right? Because this is an act of remembrance, right? This is an invocation into a new glorious song. This is a recollection. This is what they call analepsis. It's a flashback of something that has already occurred. And right now the audience and you are privileged because you get to experience the arrival of this God. When did it happen? Who knows? It's the mythic, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and it, has it already been accomplished? Of course it has, by the very first line, right? When it says, glorious son of Semele, right? I know that it has been accomplished, but now what? I want to find out how was it accomplished, right? By what means? So the, the and I'm going to say, for now, anonymous author of the hymn, mm-hmm. right? But very soon you'll be able to change that. Right? It says, I shall remember how he appeared along the shore of the Barren Sea. Right? And we talked about the Barren Sea before, right? And his sort of sudden appearance, it just says, boom. Right? He appears. Right? It's time. Right? It's time for Dionysus to make an appearance. And he, and, and he, well, an you appearance, can imagine the Aegean, right? Appearance is very important here, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, and I've always um, read that. Mm-hmm. about his, his that line about his, how he appeared as a very visual of how he looked mm-hmm. and i imagine one of those classic paintings you know with the some aristocrat looking out over the sea yeah, kind of like an on a male nude exactly yeah, yeah. in in, yeah. in some kind of heroic stance Absolutely. but his uh, his appearance and the description of I his i think that's that's quite accurate though that that's a that's a really good accurate um, intuition that you had his appearance and how he looks um, looking like a young man in the first bloom of youth. Mm-hmm. That's really significant, too, because Dionysus, until um, about the... F- was it about the... Maybe I've got it backwards. About the 5th century, Di- um, Dionysus was usually... Oh, say later. Was 
usually portrayed as an old man. Older. Or older man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a, a, a growing man, bearded. Mm-hmm. Um, and here we have... Um, like in Euripides Bacchae, here mm-hmm. we have a very young depiction of the god. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, an idea of youth, which which we've talked about before, that we don't really get with the gods. The, the, the gods just kind of tend to yeah. appear and be full-grown. And here we have a physically younger god and also chronologically um, a younger adoption into the into the pantheon. I like those points. They're all good points. Second generation gods often appear in art, in the canon of, of ancient Greek art, as younger and unbearded. Apollo, mm-hmm. Hermes, for example, his brothers. Um, we, we see this, and we would expect that the same be of Dionysus, but his later... Um, his later manifestations as slightly more mature and bearded suggest an evolution, right? A quality of evolution that makes Dionysus unique in the cosmos. And here, this idea is great. It's a great point to bring it up because it adds to the nuance of the recollection. I'm recalling into the past. So why shouldn't this God, who we recognize as more mature and bearded, be be manifest in our minds at this time in a mental epiphany as younger, powerful, and, and and um, unbearded, right? Because it is the past, right? And gods do have, of course, a very different relationship with time. But it's 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 unique, right? To to see them mature, to see them learn something, mm-hmm. right? And and I think this is one of the reasons behind, in just a small slice, to explain one of the reasons behind the d- popularity of Dionysus and the longevity of his cult is the sophistication of his portrayal. It's not just simply. Uh, you know, like say Poseidon, for example, you know, or the brothers and sisters of 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 Zeus. They're pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't really evolve per se, right? Now Zeus is the exception. I don't want to go down that road. But when you're talking about Hestia and Hera and and Hades and and um, Demeter and um, Poseidon, they are what they are at the moment of their, you know. <laughs> uh, release from Kronos, let me put yeah. that way, and their acceptance of the Namos. They right? have no childhood. Yeah, they have no childhood, and they just sort of are there, and they do what is expected of them, and they're powerful and so on. But Dionysus seems to have a more intimate connection with ritual and his human community that makes him so fascinating to me, mm-hmm. right? And we're getting a glimpse of it here, you know, with this, with this framing. Right of recollection, mm-hmm. and the interesting thing he, for me here is that Dionysus goes from being depicted as an old god. So in the Archaic, in the sixth and seventh century mm-hmm. BCE, he's usually depicted as an old or older mm-hmm. man. Yeah. Um, obviously, aside from this hymn, but then by the fifth century BCE, so by the, by the time of Euripides, he's usually depicted as a young man. And I just find that that, that kind of the backwards aging mm-hmm. um, over time, I think is very interesting. I don't have any end- yeah. reason for it, well, I, um, but just... It works. It's yeah. part of the fluid quality. Yeah. You can jump in yeah. wherever you like, you know. You, the, where, wherever, it's how myth works. Yeah, that's how <laughs> myth works. You know, like you, you know, it, it is not not to, to us to question. And 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 Dionysus's elasticity 
and dynamic quality is something that the ancients loved and that's what makes him fascinating to them and to us and I, and I, I hope that you know people will, will um, come to see that as well and this portrayal you know of him um, having you know of course the dark hair and being in the first bloom of youth unbearded and and it's and it emphasizes the strength of his body you notice his strong shoulders and purple cloak right there, there's something regal and aristocratic about the purple vestment right and and, and those little mollusks that are crushed right that yes. we've just so recently oh lost, yeah it's right it's, they're it's gone apparently oh, aren't they? oh. They, they're no the, that species has been eradicated oh that's yeah. very sad well uh, you know well, that's but yeah purple purple mm -hmm. the making of purple and our friends over at alliterative uh, or, or, or at the endless not podcast uh, would be very familiar with color with their color series yeah. but but the making of what the ancients called purple which is not necessarily the same I idea we have as purple okay um, anyway um, was a very laborious yeah. and expensive uh, process. You had to be rich. You had to be rich. You had to have so, means. so to have an entire you know, purple cloak. Yes. I mean, that says something significant about it does. him right there. It signals his power. It signals yeah. his, his his resource and this aristocratic quality. And and I might add that the strength of his body is described in here. Right, that he has strong sh strong shoulders, and. I like that idea because this is often, when we talk about Dionysus, we just jump forward hundreds of years into Euripides' back eye and start talking about the depiction of Dionysus in that particular mm -hmm. play, that Athenian play, right, of the 5th century. And that depiction is very, very different. He's blonde, he's effeminate, right? and the themes of that play are very different, right? The Dionysus presented in that play are very different. It's mine, this encounter, right? Well, I want to just bring in another interesting, also told uh, by later poets and authors, including Apollodorus in his library of Augustus, the first Roman emperor. And he's using myth, but he's as the, the captain of, of the ship describing. Um, so he's gotten even younger in mm -hmm. this in this story that he's gone from even being the not in this world sort of a yeah. mixture of male and female and old and new a blended a kind yeah. of quality strong shoulders and the purple cloak and then it says soon men on a well constructed ship and uh, on this jutting headland and he's beautiful and royal and noble and in question right and automatically right a very lure mm -hmm. right there's a snare right th that almost Suggests constructed ship, and and I like the idea about the the, the fact that the author of the poem carried right the full yeah. weight of a revealed god. This will be it. This is going to be the method of conveyance that will bring him to the Greek world, north in some remote area northwest uh, of Greece. Yeah, Probably the the perfect sense because what they are not is telling us what they are. Right uh, in a parallel Homeric hymn, say to Apollo, right, who are not Greeks, who are, becomes yeah, his priest. Ah, right to go back to line three or four. Oh. Right now, so this alone, right on this jutting headland, even the language of the jutting headland. Well, why not just say headlands? And, and this is this is something too that I, I would like, say, Sam to look at from the that even in the modern world we put 
lighthouses and so on, right? Mm -hmm. Beacons. And so here we have pirates, right? What a piece of luck. What a piece of luck mm -hmm. it is, right? Okay. Let's, um, let's All right. move ahead a little bit. And when they saw him, they nodded to each other, leapt out quickly, and at once seized him and put him on board their ship, rejoicing in their hearts, for they thought he was the son of kings, cherished by Zeus. And they wanted to tie him with painful bonds, but the bonds did not hold him, and the ropes fell far from his hands and feet. And he sat smiling with his dark blue eyes. And the helmsman understood, and at once called to his comrades, and said, Fools! What powerful god is this you have taken and bound? Not even our well-built ship can carry him. For this is either Zeus or Apollo of the silver bow, or Poseidon, since he does not look like mortal men, but like the gods who have their homes on Olympus. But come, let us release him on the dark mainland at once, and do not lay your hands on him, lest he become angry and rouse violent winds and a great storm. All right. There you go. The plot thickens. Yes. Yeah, so that's lines 8 to 24. A mm -hmm. bit, bit of a bigger chunk, but there's a lot in there to talk about. Sure. I, 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 I like the idea that, you know, just prior to this, where, of course, the sea is described as barren. And this has been, you know, a trope that we've encountered throughout most Greek myth and literature that we've discussed. And then, so that sort of notion is in your mind. But then it sort of says, soon men appeared on a well-constructed ship. And we talked about that. But the mm -hmm. idea, of course, is that it says men appeared. Men appeared. Men. Men. Want to know mm -hmm. why? Because soon a god will show himself, right? So then we move into the section that you've just read, right? And it's, they talk about that these Tyrsinian pirates, whom an evil fate was leading, right? They're not aware of it, right? But the author of this hymn is aware of their fate, right? Again, the idea of recollection. How do I know, right? How would I know that an evil fate is leading them? Am I a god, right? Am I just being creative? Well, the answer to that, possibly, and I'll suggest, will come about at the end of the hymn, right? But, again, it's a question, right? How would the author, the hymnic voice, right? How would it know these things, right? And when they saw him, they nodded to each other, right? And leapt out quickly and seized him. Once again, this is that, what I was talking about, that idea. What a stroke of luck, right? Yeah. And, wh and, and what are they doing when they're nodding at each other? Right? What we're are they doing? Yeah, we're going to get out. Let's yeah, let's yeah. Get him. so let's that get means him. that we... Yeah, they, so What's that mean? They understand each other. Right. They're, 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 on, the same, they're yeah. on the same wavelength. Right. The, pirate, the pirates are like, yeah, this is good opportunity. They recognize yeah. it. They're thinking alike. Well, because they're pirates. Yeah. The pirates are looking for things mm. to take that, they, that, that mm. they can profit. And in this case, they're going to take him and sell him as a slave or maybe ransom him. Sure, but they certainly, want to abduct him. Yeah. Right? Turn and him into is, money. This is common practice, right? And Greek and Roman times, right? Pirates would not only steal cargo, but they'd also abduct people and hold them for ransom and, and occasionally murder them if they those plans did the, not work out. The so Mediterranean was an extremely... Place was an extremely dangerous place, right. um, both because of the pirates, but then also because of the storms and winds mm -hmm. that the helmsman alludes to later. It is not a calm and easy crossing. Right. And in, 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 my, in, in my mind, this community of pirates, this like-minded community of pirates nodding to each other, right? They go out and they put hands on him, rough hands, right? They seize him and put him on board their ship. And they rejoice in their hearts and say, oh, we just did a good thing. We got lucky, right? Mm -hmm. We got this guy, Rapto, right? The seize and abduct, 
right? And so they, they're, they're patting themselves on their back for they thought, they thought in their minds, right? Just like we had been spoke, spoke about earlier, that he was the son of kings cherished by Zeus. And there's your introduction to Zeus, whom, who could have very well been on the very first line of the hymn, right? But no, Gloria Simele was the mother. But then we run through the narrative and at the moment of his seizure, at the moment of his rough treatment and abduction, Zeus is mentioned, right? Linked to, um, uh, to him as being the son, right, of kings cherished by Zeus. We know it's right too, right? And then we come to the trope of bonding. Mm -hmm. And for those of our listeners who listen to our episode on Mercury or Hermes, Hermes, this will be a familiar theme of attempts to bind or tie up a god. Yeah. And here, um, so in the in the hymn to Hermes, it's Apollo trying to bind Hermes. Here we have mortals attempting to bind a god. So you can imagine how well that's going to work for them. It's not going to work well <laughs> It's at not going to work at all. This is the and it says the bonds did not hold him and mm-hmm. the ropes fell far from his hands and feet. They just mm-hmm. slide right off. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, demonstrates and underlines mm-hmm. the power of the god that mm-hmm. he cannot be bound. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, again, if you're familiar with Dionysus' story from the Bacchae, which we'll look at some passages from from, from there someday, mm-hmm. similar sort of thing. A yeah. mortal tries to, buy, to bind Dionysus and it doesn't work and he doesn't understand why yeah they can't so be controlled or contained <laughs> if you try to tie up mm-hmm. somebody and it really doesn't work maybe maybe think twice <laughs> well this is yeah this is extremely important second generation gods have overcome that particular weakness Hermes cannot be bound in the withies in his hymn mm-hmm. Apollo cannot be bound by the golden cord at the moment of his birth and here Dionysus cannot be bound by the rough hands chains or ropes of the pirates this is something that they themselves have overcome. And, you know, it's a miraculous thing, right? And I'm often, th- I'm, I'm struck by the ignorance of, of, the, of the pirates at this particular moment as a, as a group, right? They fail to recognize what is occurring before their very eyes. And this failure is something that in myth the gods um, are not... Um, they, 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 they're not patient with they're it. They're not patient, right? They, it's this, this is something that they should have done, that the, these mortals should recognize. And this is a dishonor. Like right? our recent episode on Demeter. Um, Demeter's frustration when the human fails to understand what the god is trying to do. Right. So, yeah, the gods are not, are not patient. No, they're <laughs> not patient, nor are they forgiving. And, and Dionysus um, will we'll draw this out a little bit more. So in the presence of this first miracle, right, this failure to bind this god, right, um, and what are they, they just sort of smile, right? The gods just sort of smile. Dionysus is just like, hmm, yeah. But there with it's his not a dark, test of strength. But they're with his yeah. dark blue yeah, eyes. Right. And to me, that the, the idea of them being dark blue is somewhat ominous. Well, it's kind of romantic, isn't it? Well, yeah, but I mean, bright blue, you think cheerful, smiling, dark mm-hmm. blue. Well, that would be rare in the ancient world. Yes, mm-hmm. but it's it's got, I think it's got some ominous. And overtones. they wanted to tie him with painful bonds, but the bonds did not hold him and the ropes fell apart from his hands and feet, right? Mm-hmm. And he sat smiling with his dark blue eyes. But then look at that, line 15, and, and the helmsman understood at once and called for his comrades. This, this, this understanding, right? Is there, there always has to be somebody. Right? Always, the, yeah. There's always someone who kind of clues in. Well, yeah. This is the and here it's the helmsman. Yeah. This is the anagnorisis. This is the moment of revelation, right? Where the helmsman, 
right? Recognizes that he is in the presence of a God. Well, the others do not, right? And yeah. it's that aha, that acknowledgement, right? Identity, piety. The helmsman's mind is different than the rest of them, right? Dionysus has not revealed himself yet. No. We're going to see some of those mm -hmm. later in the hymn, so, some, some of those key uh, characteristics of a divine revelation later later in the hymn. Totally. But the helmsman clues in very early. He does. That, that this is not an ordinary immortal. This guy is too good looking. And again, that's something that we, we mm -hmm. see elsewhere mm -hmm. in, in the Homeric hymns where mortals meet gods and they're not entirely sure, but there's just something about about them they mm -hmm. are too perfect there's they're too something to, to well, just be mortal at least the, the capacity to recognize the miraculous event that just occurred before mm -hmm. your very eyes you know yeah. just as Anchises recognizes the divine Aphrodite in his hymn it's you know not fully but he does recognize that there's something about her um, it's because of their heroic wit right their 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 perception their matus their piety the helmsman sees a god in his midst right um, and they, these, it's a, it's a heroic type quality. And Chises possesses this sort of perception. And here the helmsman um, possesses this perception. And, you know, either it's because of his training as a helmsman or a navigator or so on. We don't really need to go into that. But already he's separate from his uh, comrades on, on, the, on the ship. Right, and he doesn't know who it is. Mm -hmm. He don't. He doesn't know. Is this Zeus? Is this Apollo? Is it Poseidon? I don't know who it is, mm -hmm. but it's one of them. Yeah, it's it, one of them, and I don't want him on my ship that, because our ship's going to go down. That language mirrors Anchises as well when he sees the disguised Aphrodite. Right, mm -hmm. he says, "I don't know. You could be Artemis. You could be Athena. You could be. I don't know who you are, but all I know is that you're a goddess of some sort. You might even be a nymph, for all that matter. But I need to worship you." Right. Because he has his own sort of moment of jeopardy, but this is the same. This is exactly the same type of structure that we're seeing in this recognition moment, right? And then look what he says. He speaks, right? He calls out to them at once. He calls to his comrades. Fools, right? How often have we seen that, right? Often. That powerful God says, what powerful God is that you have taken and bound, right? Not even our well-built ship can carry him. Now he really knows about the well-constructed ship, right? This this vessel, right, will not be adequate, right? We are in jeopardy here, right? He's beginning to define it. And, and look at his options. He says it's Zeus, it's Apollo, right? Or it could even be Poseidon, you know? Can you imagine, right? And, the, and, and I think that's, mortal, right? and, and I think that's important too, because that's associating, that's associating Dionysus with those big, important gods. Yeah, that's a good point. And, yeah. you know, he's, he's not like, oh, maybe it's, uh, what's that little guy's name? Yeah, uh, maybe Hermes. It's, yeah. Um, no, he's, he goes right, right up on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Goes right to the top, right? Yeah. Right, goes right to the top of the list. And, un and picks either Zeus himself, his powerful brother, the god of the sea. They happen to be in a ship. And he is a helmsman after all. And Apollo, Apollo who is right? the mouthpiece, the favorite yeah. son of Zeus. And strength, right? And then and then he just says, you know, we've, we've got to release him, right? But come, let us release him on the dark mainland at once, right? Not after we talk about it, none of that, right now. This is, the, this is their moment of decision. And do not lay your hands on him, lest he become angry and rouse violent winds and a great storm. Again, the idea about the ship, mm -hmm. right? That we're in jeopardy here. That, mm -hmm. not, that this God will exact his revenge, and that mm -hmm. revenge will destroy everyone, all the men on the ship and the ship, right? Mm -hmm. So our next few moments, right? Mm -hmm. uh, our next few decisions and are going to be yeah. the 
key decisions. And storms arise very quickly on the Mediterranean as well. And so you, you can yeah. get a sense, uh, there's a very real fear and it's... Yeah. Um, that he going to suddenly knows, win. He knows mm. what what dangers can happen. Yeah, right. The, it's the fear that every mariner would know. Yeah. This is their mortal terror, right? You talk to some farmer who's never been in a boat about, you know, a wind at sea or a storm at sea. They don't know what you're talking about. Well, you just need to follow yeah. the news today about refugees trying to cross the Mediterranean. Yeah. And it's not, it yeah. is not a peaceful sea by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. No, these transitions, these liminal phases of this movement, mm -hmm. of the arrival of this God, are are fraught with danger, dangerous, right? They yeah. they they are they are um, a dangerous transition, right? And but that danger that's not one presented to the god, but only to the men, right? Mm -hmm. Who are going to act as the agents of his arrival? And this guy's starting to clue in, right? He's starting to figure out what they're in for. All right, ready. Watch for the, for the wind and do not fear it, right? Hoist the sail and gather the lines. All right, ready for the next section? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So he spoke. But the captain rebuked him with harsh words. Fool, watch the wind. Hoist the ship's sail as soon as you have gathered all the lines. The men will take care of him. I suppose he will reach either Egypt or Cyprus or the Hyperboreans or further away. But in the end, he will tell us at some time about his friends and all his possessions and his brothers, since a god has thrown him to us. So he spoke and hoisted the mast and sail of the ship, and a wind blew straight into the sail, and they stretched the lines taut on both sides. But soon wondrous deeds appeared to them. First of all, delicious, sweet-smelling wine trickled along the swift, dark ship, and a divine fragrance rose up. An astonishment took hold of all the sailors as they watched. Instantly, at the very top of the sail, a vine spread out in every direction, and many grapes in clusters were hanging down. Around the mast, dark ivy was entwining itself, blooming with flowers, and beautiful berries sprang up, and all the orlocks were wreathed. All right, so that takes us to line, midway through line 42. Absolutely. And we get introduced to our second character in the cast. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, our third the captain. In the cast. Yeah. yeah. The captain himself. And I find this really interesting. This is a really um, interesting comparison with Pentheus from Euripides' Bacchae. The, um, the captain here, the, the, the helmsman uh, parallels the prophet who knows what's going on, and the captain parallels Pentheus who is in complete denial of the god, despite what he can see with already happening with his own eyes. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Well, well, and then that's a great analogy too, in a sense, because... D D um, Pentheus is the king of, of, of Thebes mm -hmm. in that play, and this is the captain of the ship. So the parallels work here, right? This is a this is a captain in his particular environment. He's the king of this particular vessel. He does not know that there is a greater being in his midst. It's his own folly, right? Mm -hmm. That that he refuses uh, to see this. The helmsman's perception, his heroic perception, allows him to see right the unseen, at least in some quality here. And and he rebukes him, right? He rebukes him with harsh words, and there's always those type of people, right? Uh, you know, you've, you've, you think that this episode is very much the canary in the cage type episode, but then all of a sudden the captain says, I ah, don't pay any attention to that dead canary in the cage. Don't worry about it. Uh, hoist the sails. Let's get moving, right? The men will take care of him. Yeah. And the captain doesn't care what's going to wind like where he's going to wind up. He could wind up in Egypt or Cyprus. He mentions the Hyperboreans, so mythical farthest 
uh, farthest Tiberborians are farthest north, aren't they? Yeah. So anywhere from the far south, which for them would have been Egypt and Cyprus, mm-hmm. or in the mythical uh, northern region. Sure. Um, he doesn't care. <laughs> no. Um, but what he wants to know is at some point this guy's going to talk and we're going to find out more about him and his friends and his possession and his family and we're just, we're going to be rolling in the loot. Right, and, and when he says that too, that idea of these, these geographical places, some of which are known and some of which are, are mythological, and he says, I suppose he will reach either Egypt or Cyprus or the Hyperboreans or even farther away, that sort of foreshadows right, the, the, the spread of Dionysus' cult. Right? that he will be everywhere on earth. He's mm. moving into even the mythological places amongst the Hyperboreans, the followers of Apollo, who are supposed to live beyond the north wind in the sort of a land of perpetual bliss. Right, like Even they themselves will find a place for, for Dionysus. Now, the captain doesn't say that, but the hymnic voice is talking yeah. about a mythical geography. Right? And those of us, uh, the audience, mm-hmm. listening to this, who's familiar with the story, who's we familiar with the cult of Dionysus, mm-hmm. picks up on that. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it, of, of course, the captain retreats to more practical matters and says, but in the end, he will tell us at some time about his friends and all his possessions and his brothers, since a god has thrown him to us. And I love, irony. I love that. I love the irony I love of that. that. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's, it's the boom once again, that idea of what a stroke of luck. Right. And th- there's there's no there. There is nothing about luck that that requires it to be good. Mm, right. And yeah. it's been said that which a man calls luck has been designed by the gods. Right. So here we have it. His failure to recognize it. Right. He's like, oh, the gods have thrown it to him. It's a boon. Right. It's a it's it's just random circumstance and chance. No, this has been engineered. This arrival scene is operating on a different level. And his words are far truer than he thinks. He yeah. says, since a god has thrown him to, him to us. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, Dionysus has has put himself in this position. You got it, yeah, yeah. Right, and that's why I was kind of framing it almost as a reverse abduction, right? Yeah. Who's really abducting whom here? Right? It's a typical Dionysian cat and mouse game that occurs throughout the whole spread of Euripides' back eye, but here is compressed in 49 lines in a hymn. Mm-hmm. Right? Who has power? Who has control? Who, you know, this is as part of the subtext of, of this particular hymn. And he'll tell us, because he, 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 again, he's, he's obsessed, the captain's obsessed with, with profit, right? With the sort of filthy lucre, like getting, you know, the possessions and more of his friends and, and ransoming them off. The heroic language is apoina, right? The ransom at the beginning of the Iliad will hold on to him, right? Her and then mm-hmm. ransom her off mm-hmm. um, and, and, and he has brothers and so on and you know there's there's all the idea of a god you know uh, god has thrown him to us I think is also layered mythological language so he spoke and hoisted the mast and the sail of the ship they get about their business right and the wind blew straight in the sail and they stretched the sails taut on both sides do you notice how it describes the wind and compared to the jeopardy of the of the threat of the storm that that the helmsman was talking about, the wind is actually helpful. It's helpful, right? Like it's this is again, a helpful wind. Yeah, it goes straight into the sail. They put the sails up, and boom, they were right about it. Yeah. Again, it's the idea that Dionysus is in control, right? Mm-hmm. This this ship will carry him, right? It, it will be right his. Um, his and the hymnist here hasn't given us any indication of where Dionysus wants to go. No. Although later, um, 
authors have to have their own version. Yeah. In in Apollodorus, um, I believe he places this after what happens at Thebes and Dionysus wants to sail to Naxos. Um, Ovid places this on his way to Thebes. Sure. Um, I, so I, I just like to say it's coming from really a nowhere to a Greek place. Yeah, 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 yeah that'd exactly. Be, that would be about all yeah. I would say, Yeah. right? And and you can insert it, you know. Um, yeah. But again, that's part of the almost cookie-cutter qu uh, quality um, that this, this hymn can serve in a number of, of different performance settings, right? That it allows itself to so easily be inserted uh, because the ancient world, people do travel, and they do travel by boat. Yeah, right? th well, so, for for the Greeks, for yeah. anyone who who has visited Greece or Turkey, or yeah, um, it's, it's, it's far easier yeah. to travel by boat than to try to travel over land. Absolutely. So right? yes, this is accepted. Protocol. But it's as we've commented, it's also very dangerous. Yeah. Okay. So now we get we get the wondrous deeds, right? Again, more miracles. Yeah. What's so going on here? so here um, we get wine. Sweet-smelling wine. Oh, we finally get some wine. And, of course, Dionysus wine. Well, these these are all, all of these things that we see happening here are all attributes of Dionysus. Dionysus is a, 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 go a fertility god, a male fertility god of liquid nature. Yeah. So wine, blood, um, he gets associated with blood and Water, milk, milk and, and honey. honey. Yeah. Um, the, so anything that has to do with liquids of nature that, that, that animate to that animate and innervate and innervate um, and link to fertility mm -hmm. and procreation. Yeah, and so that's why it's complex. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so sweet smelling wine. So clue number one. Yeah. Sweet. Um, oh yeah, and isn't it great how how um, uh, sensoromatic is that the word I want to use? How many sensory? different s how many senses are activated by yeah. this description? Not only of sight and sound, but also of taste? of taste and smell. Right? Yeah. They're all all the senses are being um, are, are being um, uh, conveyed here. Right? In this miraculous epiphany of a divinity. Right? Yeah, and so the expression of his power. Yeah, and we've seen we've I think we've brought up the idea of of epiphany before. It's mm -hmm. certainly um, him him to Demeter is the one that keeps coming yeah. to mind for me yeah. today. Um, usually, with an epiphany, there's smell, there's um, an increase in size sure. on the part of the god. There's um, Oh, now I'm quizzing myself here. Um, light and fear. Fear and light. Yeah. Yeah. So here we have um, a sweet, uh, um, sweet-smelling wine and a divine fragrance. So yeah. we know it's there's Dionysus. something, there's something mm -hmm. um, divine happening there. Mm -hmm. And then astonishment took hold of the sailors. So mm -hmm. we've got the fragrance and the awe. Um, he's not explicit about light and size, yeah. but we have at least here a partial epiphany, if sure. not a full epiphany of the God going on. And again, the idea of fertility. At the t very top of the sail, a vine spread out in every direction. The ship is coming alive. The yes, ship is growing. that's a good point. And many grapes in clusters were hanging down. Around the mast, dark ivy was entwining itself, blooming with flowers mm -hmm. and beautiful berries. So you, you've got the plants here in every stage of their life simultaneously. Sure. And, and the ship coming alive. And, and are not, and are not, you know, to speak, kind of put it, but rather uh, 
bluntly, are not flowers and berries the genitalia of the plant world? Yeah, yeah. So this is the fertility, yeah, it's right? Yeah, the reproduction. The, this is the exposed genitalia. This is the exposed fertility and the reproductive capacity of Dionysus, right? And and in all his power in the moment of his sort of, like you said, mitigated or partial epiphany. And this this well-constructed ship that is made of hewn lumber cut from a live tree that is dead, yeah. right? Given a form, right, is now enervated and made alive that it will carry Dionysus, this ship becomes a living vessel. Itself is transformed, just as Dionysus is transformed, right? Mm -hmm. And the sort of the sap and the juice of the wine that flows over the deck goes into the deck boards and goes into the wood mm -hmm. itself, into the lumber of the ship, right? Transforming it and making it fr and from one thing into another. And that's what transformation really does, right? To put it bluntly. Uh, is that it changes something from one phase to another and, and, and also changes its property. It was a pirate vessel, right? It is no longer a pirate yes. vessel, right? It is now the boat, the ship of Dionysus and a well-constructed one at that, thanks to his agency, thanks to his power, right? And those, the, those poor guys that are on it, they don't, they're like, well, we're going to get to them. Hell is going on. We're right? going to get to them in right? a minute. But I do want to interject here mm -hmm. just with the another reference to Apollodorus sure. and Ovid because they give slightly, I mean, this is the nature of myth, right? Yep. Um, they give slightly different descriptions. Um, Apollodorus, which is, I, I think this is kind of disappointing. Here you've got this great imagery in the Homeric Cam, and he uh, basically boils it down to one sentence which is but he Dionysus changed the mast and oars into snakes and filled the craft with ivy and the sound of flutes and the pirates went mad and jumped into the sea where they turned into dolphins yeah, well, so Apollodorus uh, makes it sound kind of boring uh, and lackluster well, after I, this description. I think he does a pretty but, good compression but yeah. yes, yes, yeah. it is a very good compression yeah. but you see that he's um, he's added in snakes well, I like in this snakes. version yeah um, and again, that's an animal that gets associated with um, particularly chthonic power. So I think that that's kind of um, kind of in, an interesting choice here. And fertility. Um, and yeah. immortality. You know, and uh, as well, the sound of flutes. Again, ritual, celebration, uh, worship of the gods and that kind of thing. I, I also like that in that moment of epiphany, in that moment of transformation that I was speaking about earlier. The idea that it's uh, the very second line of the hymn itself says, I shall remember, and we talked about how this is a recollection, how he appeared along the shore of the barren sea. Now that idea of the barren sea, the sea, Right, as being barren and without life. Not it's being swept away, <laughs> right, right in this moment of this epiphany, right? So it's a very powerful contrast. The sea is not barren here, right? In the presence of this revealed God, this ship, right, becomes, right, um, f fertile, right? Yeah, and so Ovid um, gives it, um, Ovid adds, in all treatment? kinds of conversations. His treatment's a little bit different as well. Um, he, here he has the helmsman who has become the priest of Dionysus say, I swear that I swear that what I tell you next is truth, though past belief. The ship stood still in the sea as though it had been lifted up in dry dock. The men, although astounded, persevere, redoubling their strokes and letting sail out hoping to break loose one way or another. But now the oars are tangled up in ivy and twining strands of it coil around their bodies, ascend the mast and decorate the sails with ivy berries in enormous clusters. And now the god reveals himself at last, his brow festooned with leaves and grapes in bunches, shaking a spear with vine leaves wrapped around it. 
about him tigers and the bodiless forms of lynxes and fierce leopards lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got some of the same imagery, the ivy and the and the flowers and the and uh, the ivy be- or, the, or the ivy berries. Um, but here the ship has come to a complete halt. And Dionysus is depicted as shaking a spear with vines, vine leaves wrapped around it. Well, that's um, that evokes the thyrsus, which was a ritual instrument, I guess, item that was carried. It was like a, a staff of wood with vine leaves coiled around it and a pine cone on the end. Again, pine cones, fertility, vines, fer- fertility. And Ovid here also adds in these... Um, these phantom tigers and lynxes and leopards, so ferocious animals, animals of power and royal power, um, especially mm-hmm. associated with that. Mm-hmm. And, and un- unlike unlike um, the immobility that's uh, created in Ovid's portrayal, this particular um, source in Hymn Seven in the Homeric Hymn does not suggest this immo- no. immo- immobility. No. In fact, maybe just its, o- its opposite. Because as the manifest, as the sort of uh, power of Dionysus manifests, and it says around the dark mass, ivy was entwining itself, blooming with flowers, and beautiful berries sprang up, and all the oarlocks were wreathed. So the oarlocks is where you slide in the yeah. oar, right? And they're just wreathed, so they're decorated. So it implies that the oar could go through, and the oar still becomes functional. That the ship will move across the water, right? That mm-hmm. it will going to deliver this god. Right. And the orlocks, uh, Greek orlocks, of course, were different from orlocks that you might be familiar with if you've ever um, rowed, 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 rowed a boat. Row, that row, sounds row, awkward. Row. <laughs> um, but they involved a leather loop that went around the oar and attached to to the oar. Um, so I think that the the wreathing there is very is is very apt. The, it's just curling around something that's already curling around the orb. Sure, yeah. I, the, picture, just, I pictured just the holes. Imagery. I pictured more yeah. like like a trireme type thing, you know, where yeah. a, where where a, an orb. I think there is a hole involved, hole. but then there's also Port. like a leather. Yeah. There's also yeah, a sure. leather loop. I, I don't know. I am yeah. not a, a nautical archaeologist, so I don't know archaeology. All right, let's move on. <laughs> structure. Let's move right. on to the next section. Oh, time really to read cool another stuff. section. Okay. On. All right. When they saw this, only then did the sailors order the helmsmen to put the ship into shore. But now as they watched, the god became a terrible lion in the ship at the bow and gave a great roar. But now at midship, he created a shaggy bear as he showed forth omens. And it reared up raging, and the lion on the prow stood with a terrible glare. The sailors fled to the stern in fear and stood panic-stricken around the helmsman, who had a sensible mind. But suddenly the lion sprang and seized the captain, and when they saw this, out they all leapt at once into the shining sea, escaping an evil fate, and were turned into dolphins. But taking pity on the helmsman, Dionysus restrained him and made him truly blessed, as he said, Have courage. You have delighted my heart. I am loud-roaring Dionysus, whom my mother bore, Cadmus's daughter, Semele, who mingled in love with Zeus. Hail, child of fair-faced Emily. There is no way for the poet who forgets you to compose a sweet song. And there you have it. So that takes us to the end of the Homeric Hymn, and what an ending it is. It is. What did you think about that? 
Well, um, I'm just glad I wasn't on that ship. <laughs> it sounds like it's a good thing not to be on that ship. So the sailors finally clue in that, oh, maybe the helmsman was right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when they saw yeah. this only, yeah, exactly, they turned to him. Yep. Yeah, so they don't turn to the captain. They're recognizing that it's the helmsman who mm-hmm. is obviously has the power to or the knowledge to steer the ship right. and admitting that he was right. Yeah. In, in, in this moment of jeopardy and, and decision and, and danger, they don't turn to the captain, who you think they should turn to. They realize the error of their ways. And I think that there's something about this decision that grants them, at least in Dionysus's mind, and ultimately their fate, this evil fate that's hinted at earlier on and at the end of the hymn, the little bit of clemency on Dionysus's part. They are transformed into dolphins. They are not destroyed utterly. No. Right? Which such is the fate of the captain. So there is... There are varying degrees of wrath, right? There will be retribution for these men, right? Um, but um, Dionysus is allowed to attenuate that wrath, mm-hmm. right, based on his own um, desire, right? So here we have uh, Dionysus becomes a terrible lion awesome. in the ship. So as we already mentioned, symbol of power, mm-hmm. royalty, uh, those those associations Yeah, there. and kingship. That goes yeah. back to line yeah. 11, kings cherished by Zeus, right? Yeah. Um, and gives a great roar. Mm-hmm. And there's a bear. He creates a bear somehow. Yep. A bear comes out of nowhere, um, which is kind of an interesting choice, so I think, for the, Dionysus. The lion manifests itself. Uh, Dionysus becomes the terrible lion at mm-hmm. the bow of the ship, which yeah. is at the front, right? Yeah. Um, again, probably more symbolic or emblematic of something, but um, I can't really get at it right now, right? The ship basically is described in three different in three different phases. So it does give a great roar. And this is what we would expect, the sonic quality of Dionysus. He is known as the roaring god. Bromius means l- roarer, right? Okay. Or loud one. So this is an allusion to one of his cult names. The verb would be so- would sound similar to the ears of the audience, right? And then, but now at midship, which is the halfway point, he creates... Right? He creates it. How does what does he do? He just makes it with his power, right? He creates a shaggy bear as he showed forth omens. Right? Do do we know words. do we know why it's a bear though? Yeah, maybe we okay. do. What what are your thoughts on that? I don't have any thoughts on oh, that. Oh, you know, okay. Well um, <laughs> I, I I'm fresh out of thoughts. Well, um, Joseph Campbell talks a great deal about bear cults in Europe and he talks about um, one of the ideas that in the ancient mind, at least mythologically speaking, that bears were primarily thought to be feminine. And I thought, what a great idea to fold into this hymn. Um, That this bear, you have the powerful male force of the lion, right? The power of Ah. nobility and kingship. But then the bear are supposed to represent sort of primeval, primordial mothers. And they themselves are ferocious in the protection of their children. So often bears become dangerous around cubs, like anyone would tell you in northern Ontario would tell you, don't mess with a mother bear when her cubs are around. But, and this is the same sort of thing, that there is, yes, a powerful male side to Dionysus, but there is also a feminine quality as well. Of protection. Of protection around young, perhaps, right? Or fertility, right? And... You know, you can talk about it at great length if you want, but I think that's more than enough. Yeah. That there, that the that the ferocious bear is ferocious only in its protection of the young, right? And and like, what are the young that are being protected here? I don't know. It's a bit nebulous. But again, it's myth, right? But I do like the idea of it being a manifest feminine quality, right? Yeah. That we're about to. And work. I was just going to say, we talk about bears. Mm-hmm. 
the tendency is probably to think about Artemis mm-hmm. being, because she is associated with the bear and there's yeah. an entire cults and ritual around that association. Yeah. Abraron, the Braronian, yeah. right? Yeah. The little bears, right? Yeah. And again, it's a female It's a female. It's cult. a female cult, yeah, yeah the Arctos, right? Yeah. And, um, well... It, that's a different podcast. That's a whole different podcast, right? But, yeah, it's on there. And what so does it do, right? It's, 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 I notice how it says, he creates a shaggy bear and he showed forth omens. Right, that's a very powerful word. Right, it's a very yeah. powerful thing. What, what, what are, what are these omens, and, and what is it that he's showing to us? Well, he's already shown the ivy and the vines and the wild animals um, as proof of his power and his identity, tokens, symbols yes. of his identity. Um, the hymnist doesn't tell us kind of further what he means by omens. So there mm-hmm. could be other things happening. You know, maybe. Maybe there were snakes, or maybe, you know, like, mm-hmm. th- there could be all kinds of other things um, yeah. happening, too. There's just other omens. And... Um, they're, pro- they're tokens of identity or proof of his power. Yes. Right? So, if you see them and you know what they are, and you're sort of in the club, then you're clued in, right? And this adds to the sort of terrifying revelation uh, of what we're seeing right now. Because people are like, oh, it's a god. He's well, showing and himself. Oh, and then, you know, but no, it's, it's frightening. Yeah, and the bear, it says, the bear reared up raging, and the lion on the prow stood with a terrible glare. Mm -hmm. The sailors fled to the stern so far back, Mm -hmm. panic-stricken, right to the back, around the helmsman, who had a sensible mind. I love that. Um, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Which basically, yeah, which basically means the helmsman who knew what was what and what was, you know. Mm -hmm. um, And and it also suggests, the, the sensible also suggests that the helmsman has a degree of calm. Yeah, he's keeping his wits about him, right? Yeah. And and who again, it's this power dynamics being expressed. They don't run to the captain, they run to the helmsman, who's the only guy in the midst of this whirlwind of 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 revelation is keeping a sensible mind and I'm immediately thrown back to say like he sees theogony, right? Mm-hmm. Um to line 850 to 52, very small, but it's around the the um, contest of the Typhaeon and Zeus, right? Where it says, Hades, Lord of the Dead Below, trembled, you know, when they're talking about their great cacophonous combat, and it said, and so did the Titans around Cronus and Tartarus from the endless noise and awful war. The idea that the Titans, when there's this frightful moment, we're in this threat to the cosmos in their, in their, in their huge battle that is occurring between Zeus and Typhon, even down in Tartarus, Right, the Titans run to Cronus and and cower around him, right, for protection. So it's like it's a miniature, little miniature version. The pirates, they, the crewmen, they run to the helmsman for protection, right, because he's the only one that knows really anything. Yeah, right? they're not going to run to Dionysus, nor to these animals, nor well, to the captain. Well, it's a good right? thing they don't run to the captain mm-hmm. because the lion springs and seizes the captain. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dionysus, of course, in the form of the lion. Yeah, and uh, and at that, the helmsman or the sorry, the sailors are just like better. Better I drown than I get eaten by a lion. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have to remember they probably didn't know. How to swim? We have no statistics, but generally, this idea of people knowing how to swim widely is a modern (laughs) is a modern invention. They'd rather drown. They'd rather take their chances in the ocean, embrace certain death, drowning in the Mediterranean, than stay on this ship. They're clearly frightened out of their mind. Yeah, and and this is going to be the moment of decision that makes someone do an irrational act. Why do people jump out of burning buildings? Right, self-preservation can kick in, right? Yeah. And it's it's I got, I'm doing it, right? Like tragically, those people that jumped out of the twin towers during 1911, mm-hmm. you're hundreds of stories up. You mean 
Yeah, okay. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, during 9-11, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Uh, that is not a rational act, but this is something that they're doing because self-preservation kicks in. It emphasizes yeah. the human animal in the face of this sort of divine wrath, right? Because they're clearly out of their minds. And and it's, uh, the lion seizes the captain. Well, <laughs> that's poetic language for really saying what? Eats him, kills him. Yeah, like, like devours him. Yeah. Like, I would say violently, brutally rips him apart and consumes yeah. him. Right? Well, and the great thing about that mm-hmm. is that for a 5th century audience yeah. and our, and us, we get that um, from our familiarity, again, with Euripides, yeah. where Euripides shows the worshippers of Dionysus who are out of their minds sure. Some of them. Yeah. Um, with frenzy who mm-hmm. tear apart wild animals and Pentheus... Yeah. Pentheus being the one who didn't believe in Dionysus. Yeah. Um, so there's poetic justice totally. here. It's part of the complete, cult. complete. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't even say poetic, poetic justice. Yeah. There's a divine justice here that uh, Dionysus is um, killing the captain who refused, who was faced with this knowledge by the helmsman. The helmsman went to him and said, look, you can't, you can't do this. You can't have this guy on the ship. You've got to put him aboard. And the captain says, no. Yeah. Um, so I think the captain is being held to higher accountability here than just the sailors who seized him initially. The captain was the one who had the power to stop it. Yep. To stop from mistreating, from trying to bind and trying to kidnap Dionysus. Mm-hmm. He is clearly bearing yeah, but tra- more yeah. brunt. And, and tragically, he does not have the heroic perception, right? No. So he is doomed for, yeah. for what he is. Um, um, his failure to recognize Dionysus. So he is ripped apart. And, and the audience would, of course, recognize this as ritual behavior that's being modeled here because this rending, word? with the rending of, of the uh, of sacrificial victims and also the um, the eating of their, uh, the, the homophagia, right? The, with the eating of What's, their victims. Do you remember the word for the ritual ripping? And oh. um, <laughs> so uh, this is something that we see with, with, with uh, the captain here. And... Um, the, the audience would recognize that, but I think even from a, a, on a metonymical level, what we're seeing by an association here of a person of power and authority um, being represented by the captain, uh, and and um, as the captain as the king of this vessel, and then the manifest lion, right, as being a, a, a symbol of nobility and kingship. These are the things that come into conflict during the Dionysian festival. These are the types of things that come into conflict when Dionysus is worshipped in the democratic right? Because Dionysus is a very democratic type god, right? And yes, he's a god of, of the marginalized peoples, but he's a people, he's a type of god that people, like Pentheus, for example, in Euripides' play, the king, but he is being killed, right? Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's going to be destroyed by the agency of a god, him, in this context, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not going to work, right? So, um, As sure. well, for that association of dolphins coming alongside ships. Well, that's kind of um, neat, yeah. And I think... Matters not. Let's move on. <laughs> but anyway, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so dolphins... And, and Greek fishermen and so on would be aware of dolphins or porpoises or whatever, and, and they, they are exceptional animals, much like the wolf on land, the dolphin is at the sea. They have a mate into dolphins, right, sort of the harbingers of his arrival. But then look, we see the pity, right? But take that idea of that selection, right? And um, he says to him, to um, um, the, the helmsman, and he says, have courage. And there's a little bit of an ellipsis. You have delighted my heart, right? And I'm immediately drawn to the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, line 191, where Anchises, right, um, after <laughs> just cluing in in his moment of recognition, is granted pity by the revealed Aphrodite. And she says, 
Anchises, most noble of mortal men, have courage and do not fear too much in your heart. Right? This is something that both hymns are talking about. Right? We've selected someone. Right? And in this case, it will be the helmsman. Dionysus has selected this man. And what does he do? Um, of course, again, we get drawn all the way back to the very first line of the hymn where it says, I am loud roaring Dionysus, whom my mother bore. I am, right? This is the identity. I know, you know who I am now, my revealed face, right? Hail, child of, fa of fair-faced simile, right? We've got that. There is no way for the poet who forgets you to compose sweet song, right? Love that. Right? Mm -hmm. What a what a great ending, right? And that's um, that occurs in uh, in uh, hymn one, I think. I'm not sure, but another hymn to there's another hymn to Dionysus mm -hmm. that ends the same way. Yeah, and and so I, I I like this idea of remembrance, right? And if we go back um, to the very beginning of the play, uh, the, the hymn, I mean, um, when we see what is different in this hymn is this idea of recollection that I was talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and then it, it, the, the question that I, that I like to ask and, and, and maybe answer if possible, where at the beginning where it says of Dionysus, son of glorious Semele, then it says, I shall remember how he appeared along the shore of the barren sea. And considering what we know about the ritual, who might the I be? Who is the hymnic voice? If we're going to give him an identity, who might he be? The helmsman. Yes. There yes. you go. That's what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> He's the only one who survives yep. to tell the tale. And, and in the ritual, he becomes the priest. Yes. So when you see the ship yeah. being carried, the the, 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 yeah. the the ship being carried with the incumbent it, god depicted on it. And the priest is, is, is the guy that walks well. before it, right? And, and yeah. you would recognize the, the priest, i.e. helmsman, right, as being the one that brings Dionysus into your community. And that's the, the same, great Dionysia. And that's the same thing we saw with Apollo, that we see with Apollo. Um, that the ship that he yeah those uh, guys become his priests uh, yeah, plural yeah 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 mm -hmm. yeah he's the one that transforms into a dolphin by the way in that yes. narrative yes. right but um, again you can see how they work together right dolphins and pirates and ships and priests and helmsmen and captains and mm -hmm. so on right maybe we should uh, do the, do the Homeric hymn to Apollo that's yes, it's possible yeah, we haven't done that one yet mm -hmm. I don't think. All right, so I guess that wraps it up for Dionysus. Well, I, you know, or did you have something more? You I look like you've got more. <laughs> I did. I did. And I wanted to okay. say that um, this. I've kind of presented this hymn in a more complex narrative structure, uh, uh, but again, I find it fascinating because um, there's so much information that's been compressed in in these fifty odd lines. And when we look at literary archetypes, and this is kind of timely in a sense, an American novelist by the name of John Garner. Uh, who in the 1980s um, wrote a series of really great books. One was Grendel, I was telling you about this morning. And it's just recently been um, um, uh, honored again um, during the sort of centennial of some of his works. Is the person who's responsible for saying that there are really only two types of stories. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we often talk about, oh, this is the story of, you know, the... Um, wrath, withdrawal, return, or we use Jungian archetypes or whatever, but John Garner boils them down into two, and this is something you probably have already heard, but it might have been falsely attributed to someone else, that there are only two types. A person goes on a journey, or a stranger comes to town. Yeah. So all narrative can be either or, or what I like in this hymn, because a stranger is coming to town. It's an arrival, right? But also, someone is going on a journey, yeah. right? Who is that person? 
Right? Dionysus. Is it Dionysus or is it the helmsman? Yeah. Right? Is it his transformation from a helmsman who had a sensible mind into a priest to Dionysus, right? Mm -hmm. All those things start to get folded back in into that story, right? Um, and if you consider the hymnal voice uh, as, as being that of the helmsman and ultimately the priest, in these uh, hymns, in this uh, hymn's footing as one of remembrance, you get to see that there's uh, new areas of understanding begin to take root. Because we're looking back at something that's already happened, mm -hmm. right? And we, we, we see that, that analeptic vision. It gives us a new way to frame our contemporary understanding of something, right? As we experience Dionysus that afternoon in Athens or whatever, right? So that's my, that's my take on, that, on the ending of that. All right. Okay, so that wraps it up for the Homeric Hymn to Dionysus. Mm -hmm. You can find our um, our show notes and whatnot on our spanking new blog. Oh, brand spanking new. Brand spanking new. Um, Mythtake.blog. Yeah. And uh, that'll take you right to all of our information. I think there's even a contact form on the on the blog. Yep. We'll have to, we need somebody to try that out. So uh, try it out for us and we'll see if it works. Mm -hmm. um, Twitter, you can find us at Ines Allison. And I'm at Darren Sundstrom on Twitter. Um, and hashtag MythTake. Of course. Um, check out the hashtag uh, humanity, Humanities Podcasts as well. Yeah, and use that hashtag in your own podcasts. Yeah. As our yeah. listener audience who um, of course, have other uh, or other podcasters when they're yeah. podcast when they're using that hashtag, it, it it makes the community become vibrant. Yeah. Um, so we didn't have any listener mail, so that's going to nope. wrap it up for us for today, our first podcast of 2017. That's right. So Happy we New hope Year. you're enjoying your new year, and um, hope it's a transformative we, one, <laughs> but in all the good ways. Yeah. And we will see you again in a couple weeks. Adios, muchachos. Good night. this podcast, you may be interested in other podcasts that focus on the humanities. In fact, if you search Twitter for the hashtag humanities podcast, you'll find plenty of shows on history, language, literature, philosophy, art, and more. These podcasts are by people who enjoy telling stories, exploring the arts in our world, and who want to share that knowledge. Some examples of podcasts you'll find are The Endless Knot, an in-depth podcast featuring history, etymology, and all-around fun facts about a different topic every episode. The Story Behind, a short narrative podcast featuring the extraordinary history of ordinary objects, people or places, or The Archaeology Podcast Network, which features a variety of podcasts focusing on archaeology. Search hashtag Humanities Podcast today or follow Humanities Podcasters on Twitter. And if you're a Humanities Podcaster, use the hashtag in your tweets so others can find you.